It's Thursday, November 21st. From KLCC News, this is the Northwest Passage. Thirteen counties win a billion-dollar lawsuit against the state of Oregon that claims it has failed to maximize revenue from logging. The Association of Oregon Counties meets this week in Eugene to discuss housing and homelessness. And the latest count from Portland State University puts Eugene behind Portland as the second-largest city in Oregon, but the U.S. Census says it's Salem. And we'll make note of World Toilet Day. These stories and more in this edition of the Northwest Passage podcast. Support for the Northwest Passage comes from Columbia Bank, member FDIC. everybody. Thanks for joining us for the Northwest Passage podcast. On KLCC, I'm News Director Rachel McDonald. I'm Morning Edition host Ani Katz. And I'm News Reporter Brian Bull. It's been an unusual week. KLCC has been airing special coverage of the House impeachment hearings, but that doesn't mean local news has stopped. So Ani, what are some of the stories that we, we do know of that happened this week in our region? So um, 13 Oregon counties were just awarded $1 billion by a jury. Um, These timber counties basically said that the state was in breach of contract because the state promised 80 years ago to manage Oregon forests to maximize revenue from timber. So the state's defense was that the value of public forests isn't just timber. It's hunting, fishing, other recreational activities, and of course, clean water. But the counties won out. They actually received a little bit less than what they'd initially sued for, which was $1.4 billion, and they got a little over $1 billion. So obviously still a very nice chunk of change, and the state is expected to file an appeal. Wow. That's a big chunk of change. It's a huge chunk of change. Not exactly sure what they're going to use it for, but I think it's probably to fill up those coffers that they feel haven't been filled by the timber industry. And it's uh, 14 counties altogether? It's 13 counties and then other taxing districts. All right. Yeah. In the story that we got from reporter Jess Burns, she interviewed, I think it was an attorney who was following the case, who said actually that logging has been up. Right. Yeah. So it's interesting to see what will happen with the appeals court. Yeah, I wonder. I mean, it seems like they the state's pretty confident about the appeals court, but I guess it depends on who's sitting on it. And it's also different because the court that initially gave this this award was is a jury of Oregon citizens. and The appeals court is three judges. Yeah. So it really depends on who's on it. So moving on, lots of environmental news this week. The Confederated Tribes of Warm Springs are looking into hemp production. They're actually one of 11 tribes with a hemp plan under review by the Department of Agriculture. They've submitted a plan to the federal government that, if it's approved, would allow them to grow hemp, creating jobs and revenue for the state. And this is especially after the Confederated Tribes of Warm Springs have suffered a lot of losses over the past 10 years. The Kanita Resort closed. Mm. And before that, they also had other job losses. So they're really looking for other ways to create revenue and jobs for uh, the tribe. And it's not just the tribe. I know that there are a lot of farmers who are looking at hemp as a huge opportunity. And as we reported a few weeks ago, too, uh, there's now efforts underway to get hemp regulated. It was passed in the 2018 Farm Bill, and you have that unlikely bipartisan partnership between Mitch McConnell and Ron Wyden, who are trying to get this all codified, I guess, and, and, and stated. And I guess they're in the probably nearing the halfway point of the listening period and public comment period on it. And 
if all gets signed off on, uh, yeah, we'll see by the end of the year, uh, hemp as a legalized crop that could be raised anywhere here in the United States. Yeah, and it grows. I mean, obviously, it's it's called a weed for a reason. It grows really well <laughs> everywhere. So, you know, it may, it may change your scenery as you're driving, as you take your road trips. And then a little further down south in the Klamath Basin, a federal appeals court this week said the water rights of Klamath Basin tribes get priority over farmers. Now, this was a really long lawsuit. Back in 2001, farmers had sued the federal government after their water supply was reduced following Following a dry year, they need the water for irrigation. Um, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit just ruled that tribal water rights have existed since time immemorial. You can't really say much more after that. Time immemorial is kind of like, okay, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Case closed. <laughs> So we have a lot of stories, I guess, that are kind of resurfacing this week mm-hmm. after we haven't heard them for a while. And so another one of those is that we are now talking about an I-5 bridge going from Portland, Oregon to Vancouver, Washington. Again, we have a bridge, but it's not in very good shape, especially regarding seismic preparations. And it's not big enough to deal with the area's congestion from population growth. We all know that that area especially has grown significantly. So Governors Brown and Inslee met earlier this week to formally restart the push for a new I-5 crossing. Now, the reason this is kind of a story that was old and is now new again is that there were talks about an I-5 bridge between these two cities, and they stalled over money back in 2013 following years of planning. Washington lawmakers basically walked away from the table because they declined to pay their share of the project over the Columbia River, and then Oregon walked away the following year. So both states this time around have set aside $44 million to create an office to work on the project. So no construction plan yet, no design yet, so hopefully they'll stay at the table this time. I recall there was a nationwide audit about uh, three or four years ago that showed that roughly, I believe, three-fourths of the nation's bridges and overpasses were largely in need of maintenance and repair. So I hope that they can uh, get something approved and run through so people feel a little less nervous about using the existing bridge and have a new bridge to look forward to. Yeah, I mean, it's such a major crossing. And I think every once in a while, you'll see those horrific news stories pop up with like a huge bridge collapse or an overpass like collapse. Exactly. And so um, I think, you know, especially because we have that Cascadia subduction zone earthquake that we're all kind of, you know, anticipating, um, it just makes it that much more important to really focus on this I-5 bridge. Mm Mm-hmm. I can see how much of a headache it's going to be, though, when they when and if they do finally get to the point where they're rebuilding it. I know. I wonder. I wonder if. I wonder if we'll get there. <laughs> <laughs> um, and finally, uh, we all know Portland is the biggest city in Oregon. That's obvious. But who gets the second place? So. I'm a child of Eugene. For most of my life, Eugene's always been the second biggest city in Oregon. (laughs) And then for some reason, after I left somewhere in there, Salem became the second biggest city in Oregon, and (laughs) Eugene was bumped down to third place. But apparently, Chris Lehman did some reporting uh, earlier this week that there's actually some debate about that. The U.S. Census Bureau is actually the one that says Salem's the biggest, but Portland State University uses different statistics, Mm. and they came out with a study that says actually Eugene's bigger. So who gets to decide? 2020 U.S. Census. Well, in the meantime, it's all just up to metrics and what people use. Well, I think we should settle it with like a Sharks-Jets 
fight, you know, <laughs> maybe. Like all, West the, all these story. Eugenians and Salem residents snapping their fingers exactly. as they a approach dance each off. other. I know. There we go. <laughs> I think you're going to leave the Eugene side, Brian. With, uh, Lebanon <laughs> caught in the middle. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so, Brian, um, tell us about what you've been working on this week. Uh, this week, the Association of Oregon Counties is having its annual conference in Eugene, and this is an organization of roughly three dozen counties that offers training and resources to better manage assets, so it's a pretty well-attended regular conference. This year's theme is on housing issues and homelessness, which are tasking many counties' resources. Uh, the three issues that were raised were accessibility, affordability, and variety of houses. Uh, the keynote speaker was Dr. Rachel Solitaroff. She's CEO of what's called Central City Concern in Portland. It's a nonprofit that uh, basically works towards a self-sufficiency and combating homelessness. And she talked about a number of things that are kind of factoring into this problem from a Portland perspective, but can also apply to a lot of outlying areas. Uh, she said that, for instance, in her city, the average rent increased by 52%. But median renter income only rose by 19%. So the cost of living is going up farther than people can successfully manage. She also mentioned that in the last two decades, Oregon has lost 73 manufactured home parks, which comes to about 2,700 homes. And affordable housing construction isn't keeping up with growing demand and population trends in Oregon either. Uh, there is hope, though. Uh, Solitaroff told me that counties are in a very unique place to affect solutions. The county can convene partners specifically for the construction of affordable housing, which also brings in some operating support, some rent subsidy, and some services for really specific populations to help them come off the street, come into housing, but then remain in the housing long term. And that's the unique ability of counties to do some of that um, convening and organizing that can have a big impact. So, Brian, what was the general response from the audience? Attendees seemed eager for answers and open to collaboration. Here's Heather Buck. She's Lane County Commissioner for District 5 on her takeaway. She's in a different city and county than Lane, but we see the same similar effects up and down the West Coast. And it's so important that we share these ideas with one another because we need to collaborate as much as possible to find the right solutions for each particular location. Last year's theme was bridges between rural and urban, so there's always been kind of this underlying theme that even though a lot of counties are in outlying rural areas, that there's still lessons to be learned and things to be ideas to be exchanged between the rural and urban communities. And I think homelessness is certainly one of those that's going to continue to grow and continue to be both a matter of cities and outlying areas. Well, Brian, speaking of rural communities, um, we aired a feature this week from correspondent Anna King, who reported from the Palouse, that's up in um, Washington, at the Washington-Idaho border. She went out and interviewed farmers who grow garbanzo beans or chickpeas, and they're dealing with issues around rain. They're dealing basically with wet beans. They can't get their beans to dry because of the weather. And that's affecting yield, which will affect whether or not they actually make a profit or can, you know, survive into the next year. They're also dealing not only with weather, but with um, the ongoing trade war. So it's it's a big issue for farmers in the Northwest. And it was a really good story, beautifully written with some good sound. Here's a little bit from Anna King. Corey Whitman-Stitt leans against the tractor as it fills with diesel in a remote field. 
She and her husband have finished the garbanzo harvest, but now there's winter wheat to plant before it's too muddy. So this time of year when we're under the gun with weather, we'll, we'll go as many hours as we can and plan on sleeping when it rains. Constant rain. Trade wars. Growers say it's hard to find any commodity that's making money right now. As one here put it, the only choice for family farmers now is to lean into the wind. You can find Anna's story at klcc.org. Brian, um, speaking of beans, um, you had some fun with a, a feature this week. Yes, um, beans being high in fiber, fiber being a main factor in being able to go on a regular basis. Uh, that leads into the observance this year, uh, November 19th, this past Tuesday, of what is called World Toilet Day. It's my that, favorite holiday. It's established, it was established as an official United Nations Day by the UN back in 2013. And uh, basically, even though we kind of laugh at uh, toilets, hence the term bathroom humor, it's actually a pretty serious business by the UN. Uh, figures that I got from a group called Plan International, which is a global relief organization, says roughly a third of the world does not have access to toilets. 500,000 children, or half a million, uh, die every year from contaminated water and improper sanitation. So... Toilets provide sanitation, better control of disease and parasites, and grant relative dignity as opposed to what's called open-air defecation. Uh, to give you a little bit of a visual, if you want that, uh, the average person makes 320 pounds of poop a year. Wow, uh, wow. That breaks down to 640 billion pounds of human waste, and it's got to go somewhere. It doesn't just float away. Wouldn't that be nice? Uh, it's basically... Distributed and, and in our modern society, it gets sent to a, a sewage plant and it's separated and water and, you know, basically it goes through its process. But in a lot of developing countries, uh, they don't have that. There's very rudimentary toilets, latrines and outhouses. Uh, chamber pots were very popular in the uh, 19th century. But now we've got the flushing varieties, also compostable toilets and even incinerating toilets that I learned during my reporting. Uh, but... As long as it eliminates the waste and removes it from where people gather and keeps it out of the environment, namely water tables, um, toilets serve a very important function. So this was an observance just to get people to think a little bit about this appliance that we often take for granted. One of my immediate sources here in Eugene was Laura Allen. She's co-founder of Greywater Action. She's written extensively about toilets and sustainable water practices. She walked me to one behind a residence, a compostable toilet, they're relatively easy to use without having a sewer hookup. So this particular model, the composting happens down there. So you can see it's not a really large chamber. So once the material is mostly compost, there's a little drawer that's removed and then it's taken outside to fully compost. So I feel like I'm going to get in trouble with my husband if I don't ask this. So can compostable toilets create fertilizer for gardens? Not with human waste. There's just too much potential for diseases and parasites. But after a year, uh, it can all break down and be used in landscaping or planted near fruit trees, for example. And one thing that uh, Laura Allen also pointed out is that in case there's a major disaster, we keep talking about that uh, Cascadian subduction zone uh, possibility, uh, water and sewer lines could be compromised in case a major earthquake hits here, in which case a very simple bucket filled with sawdust will be a basic but very effective toilet until that infrastructure is restored. So happy World Toilet Day. 
for those of you interested in actually how uh, sewer, how the sewers work, there's actually, if I don't remember the title of it, but a, a Radiolab episode went into a very in-depth tour of a sewage facility in New York City, and it was fascinating. Great mm-hmm. tape. Um, I bet if you Google New York City sewer Radiolab, you'll find it. It was an awesome episode and actually pretty interesting, too. I would trust the Radiolab guys to make that fascinating. Yeah, yeah. and also lots of poop jokes, just like your story. Excellent. <laughs> You're listening to the Northwest Passage. We'll be right back. Support for KLCC's Northwest Passage is provided by Columbia Bank. Columbia Bank makes a difference in our community through sponsorship of Lane County organizations and the Warm Hearts Winter Drive, supporting homeless shelters across the Northwest. More information on how Columbia Bank team members give back to Lane County is available at ColumbiaBank.com. Columbia Bank, where relationships rule. Member FDIC. You're listening to KLCC's Northwest Passage podcast. I'm News Director Rachel McDonald with reporter Brian Bull and Morning Edition host Ani Katz. Now it's time for us to talk about something else that we've been paying attention to this week in the news or just in the world. Brian, what have you what have you got? Well, a lot of people may have noticed that uh, a lot of our airtime and a lot of stations' airtimes, uh, PBS, uh, major networks, and the cable news networks, seem to be focused a little bit on this uh, impeachment thing. And it has been uh, going on for more than a week now. And it's been one of those where there's a lot of, I guess you could argue, political posturing, insinuations, a lot of clapbacks. And a lot of technical details that just goes on for hours and hours and hours. And uh, some people are really devout political junkies and get really deep into the reads with the details. And some people are, I think, suffering from impeachment hearing fatigue, you could, you could say, um, as the many different personalities roll through and the many different accounts are shared. This, I think, has helped give rise to a very unexpected Internet hero uh, who was actually caught on camera behind uh, Army Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman this week. And that would be a reporter by the name of Emma Dumaine. Uh, she is a congressional reporter with McClatchy. And in the clip, as uh, Lieutenant Colonel Vindman is, is testifying, answering questions to the uh, hearing, uh, she is in the background chugging away on her coffee. I mean, she is just slamming it. And then she pauses and looks at the camera for just a moment and then goes back and takes another hefty slug of her coffee. And it is just one of those odd moments that, for some reason, just really kind of resonated with a lot of people. And as she explained afterwards, she was getting these uh, texts and emails pointing out that she'd been caught on camera and it was going viral and people were tweeting and retweeting the footage. Uh, She said that she was simply trying to get the very last few drops on a very (laughs) tall, narrow cup. It was her first coffee of the day. She's a working mom with a toddler. She had to get up extra early. She, I guess she hadn't had a full night's sleep. And so when she was racing through to get to this congressional hearing, uh, she just had to grab coffee on the run. And so this was her necessary caffeine to get through the hearings. She says it, nece- it necessitated a dramatic tilt of the tall, narrow cup. But no, quote unquote, I don't typically drink coffee in a dramatic fashion like that. <laughs> I just always feel bad for the people that are on camera behind those who are <laughs> testifying during these hearings because they are basically on camera 
the entire time. Yes. And I'm sure they feel very self-conscious about what they're looking like. So it's really <laughs> funny that she was just like, no, I'm just drinking my coffee. Yeah, yeah. She did know that she was on camera, but she felt, too, that they were going to be shifting away from the witness every so often. And she didn't know if she was always going to be in view. And this one time, I guess she just let it lapse. Uh, one thing that came out of an article by Slate was that uh, there are a lot of women who related to uh, Emma Dumaine. Uh She says that there are a lot of women who wrote her saying, quote-unquote, I feel seen. So even in a tongue-in-cheek kind of way, people were telling her that they felt a catharsis in seeing that clip. It was almost like, oh, yeah, I kind of get it. We're all trying to get by. Not that I think I inspired anyone, she told Slate, but uh, <laughs> inspired she did. And I think it was kind of a welcome uh, moment of uh, levity that uh, – people needed from these very intense and serious impeachment hearings. Well, my source of levity this week has to do with dogs. I'm not really a dog person, but um, this week our office manager, Sally, has a new puppy who she's bringing in every day, and it's been just really sweet to see this cute little puppy. Totes adorbs, as the kids say. Very cute and very sweet. But also, um, everyone knows the All Things Considered theme. Well, on Twitter, an NPR listener um tweeted a little video apparently her dog named jake never howls at you know police sirens or other dogs it's been seven years that they've owned him but for some reason every time the npr theme song comes on he sings along (laughs) so there's a little video that goes along with it and you can see she has three different incidents where the dog is giving a little howl <laughs> a hell of approval or a hell of disdain. I it's think. hard to tell. It's hard to tell. It seems like though that it's that the dog is listening carefully to the NPR All Things Considered billboard and getting ready to to howl a little bit uh when the theme comes on. As many uh children of NPR listeners will often do too, I'm sure. At least <laughs> to themselves. Yeah. Hey, I hum the morning edition theme song every day when it plays during the, during the billboard. You. <laughs> exactly. In the morning edition chair. Thanks, everyone, for joining us for KLCC's Northwest Passage podcast. I'm News Director Rachel McDonald. I'm the host of Morning Edition, Ani Katz. And I'm reporter Brian Bull. Bye. Support for the Northwest Passage comes from Columbia Bank, member FDIC.